Quite soon, a happy event is going to take place in this family, bringing to it an even greater glory than it has enjoyed up to now. But it will be a glory as excessive and as transitory as a posy of fresh flowers pinned to an embroidered dress, or the flare-up of spilt cooking oil on a blazing fire. In the midst of that brief moment of happiness, never forget that even the best party must have an end. For if you do, and if you fail to take precautions in good time, you will live to regret it bitterly when it is already too late. everybody this is another installation of rereading the stone this is kevin wilson joined as always by liam jones will are you ready for today's review session i am i am i am ready to go back summarize and and look at things from a kind of fresh perspective and so this is our second review session so our first one covered chapters 1 through 12 uh and we kind of theorize that maybe uh, having these like 12 chapter bundles uh, is appropriate for um, a 120 chapter novel with uh, some Wuxing, uh five phase um, uh, manifestations. And so we, we kind of we've been theorizing that yeah, like uh, the the 12 chapter um, bundle is the most appropriate bundle, uh, metaphysically speaking. <laughs> yeah, it's the it's the it's the fundamental or like yes piece, yes the, the the thing itself uh, the the twelve chapter unit is uh, yeah the basic form of this novel. Anyway, that's, that's how that's how we're doing it. So this is our second twelve uh, twelve chapter bundle, um, and so we're gonna I guess just kind of jump jump right in and. Uh, yeah, so, and talk, so as you talk said, about we're into the things. second 12-chapter cycle uh, in the novel. Um, so this section begins appropriately enough with a dream. So, so chapter chapter 13 begins with a, um, one of the women of the household, Wang Xifeng, who is um, she's a member of the family by marriage, um, and she has this kind of managerial responsibility. She's the one who makes a lot of decisions about how the household is run and where the finances are spent and things. Um, and so she's lying in bed uh, one cold winter evening when her friend enters. And this friend is uh, Qin Keqing, who is also known as uh, Lady Qin or uh, Qin Shi. She's also a, another young woman of the, woman of the household uh, also by marriage, um, and when she enters, we know almost immediately that this must be a 
some kind of dream. Um, because she at this point is suffering from a long illness which has left her bedridden. Uh, and so to add to the mystery of this appearance, she speaks in kind of almost sphinx-like language, full of riddles and, and unusual figures of speech. And in this kind of appearance, she, she warns of great perils ahead for the family, which can only be avoided if Xifeng begins taking uh, measures immediately. And if she fails to, then the whole family will be ruined. Now, Xifeng is kind of confused by this apparition, but before she can really make sense of what Ke Qing is saying, she's woken from the dream by the tolling of the bell, signaling death. And the death in question is this, this young woman, Qin Ke Qing. So in the next few chapters are occupied really with the aftermath of her death. Uh, we see how deeply her death affects all the members of the household, um, including our um, our protagonist, Jia Baoyu, who, on hearing the news of her death, actually kind of coughs up or vomits up blood. Uh, and so the, the kind of sorrow is shared by the masters and servants alike of the household. Among them, no one is more deeply affected than uh, Qin Ke Qing's father-in-law, Jia Zhen. Uh, he is very visibly grieving. Uh, he orders that her body should lie in state for seven times seven days, 49 days, which is a, a kind of, uh, it's some kind of important um, symbolic number, is that right? Yeah, right. It, it has, um, it has its own kind of uh, cosmogony, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and during that period, there are going to be these elaborate Buddhist and Taoist ceremonies conducted. Mm -hmm. He purchases this luxurious coffin made of the finest wood for her. Uh, he bribes <laughs> an imperial eunuch to grant an official title to his, his son, Jia Rong, mm -hmm. the widower of, um, of Ke Qing, uh, so that there will be kind of, so that he'll have appropriate kind of gravitas, um, you know, and add kind of weight and importance to Ke Qing's funeral. So rather than her her death being just the death of the wife of a of a kind of a member of a noble family, she's now posthumously going to be the 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 wife of a, a duke. I think it is something mm -hmm. like that. Um, now this apparent excess on the part of Jia Zhen does not go unnoticed, with his cousin Jia Zheng calling it improper for you know in the circumstances, and indeed there's more than a hint of impropriety about the whole affair. The, um, an earlier dream sequence in chapter 5 hinted that Ke Qing's death would be suicide. And a comment by a drunken servant in chapter 7 alleges that Jia Zhen is sleeping with his daughter-in-law. During the morning period, we see also that Jia Zhen's wife, Yu Shi, stays away from all public appearances, uh, claiming that an old illness of hers has flared up. Um, more disturbingly, one of um, one of uh, Ke Qing's maidservants, uh, Rei Zhu, is found dead in the immediate aftermath of her death. Um, she has apparently, you know, committed suicide by dashing her head against a pillar 
But, you know, to some at least, this seems, it seems improbable that a maid would be so devoted to her mistress as to follow her into death, and furthermore to do it in such a, a violent manner as to strike her head against the pillar until she was dead. Um, and then so lastly, these rituals that we mentioned being performed by the Buddhists and Taoists as part of the funeral rites, they include rituals of purification and absolution. And if, as the narrative suggests, Keqing died after a, a long illness, then what need would there be for purification or you know, what sins would need to be absolved? Right. Um, so the whole thing is, yeah, it's a bit, there's, a, there's something not quite right about it, you know? Yeah, you know, um, at, at the same time, you know, th this section, you know, th this series of events you, you've just described uh, really speaks to um, sort of the, the vividness of this, of this world, right? It, it's so real, it's so realistic that you can imagine that things, a lot of the things you mentioned are like, if not happening off screen or just like barely um, directly evidenced in the text, but they have this kind of um, these like echoes of meanings and significance. And so by having something, the example that you mentioned toward the end of the uh, one Chinka Ching's maidservants, uh, Reiju, uh, her like, her, uh, her death is hardly even mentioned. Uh, it's only like a passing paragraph or two. Um, but, you know, it is this kind of, um, it's the kind of thing that actually, I think the first time that we um, we went through the text, we didn't actually like properly emphasize that this might not simply be a case of uh, like sort of excessive filial piety, but it might also be a case of, um, you know, uh, like a murder actually might have, might have occurred, you know, the covering up of yeah. um, of some kind of crime or some kind of illicit uh, affair, most most probably that yeah. between Chinka Ching and her father-in-law, uh, Jia Zhen, right? It, exactly, exactly. I mean, as we as we see, I think countless times throughout this book, the servants are very well aware of their master's mis you know mm -hmm. misdeeds, uh, you know their illicit behaviors, their the things they get up to behind closed doors, and um, and so certainly if you were Jia uh, Zhen in this situation uh, and you thought that this maid might know too much um, about what might have happened and might disrupt the, the official story of, you know, she died after a long illness and it's terribly sad then you, uh, yeah, you yourself or through one of your own servants might um, you know, kind of stage uh, an apparent suicide uh -huh. but, but all of this is, you know, like either um, appearing off screen or something that you have to kind of read between the lines or it's appearing in the differences between uh, versions of the text. You know, like the, uh, the, there's the controversy over whether uh, Chinka Ching died in her sleep or in some versions uh, it's, or actually in the, uh, in the poems in chapter five, it's alluded to that perhaps she hangs herself. Um, um and so there's kind of this like it's very dreamlike in that the uh between versions you see like you, you almost basically see the sensor at work right and and so not only is the sensor working on the level of you know maybe like silencing you know like permanently silencing 
uh, certain maids who might know too much, but also between versions of the text, uh, maybe, um, you know, um, severing any connections to, you know, real events that might have happened to the author of the novel. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And in a way, it's quite a good, maybe inadvertently, but it's quite good as a reflection of society at the time, which is there would have been lots and lots of these kind of scandals, but very rarely would they actually have come to light. And, you know, the only way that anyone could have known about them outside a very small circle would be exactly this way, by piecing together these little clues mm -hmm. from here, there and everywhere to try to make sense of it. Um, but, it, you know, it's really these details that, like, make this, um, this story come alive, I think. Um, because we start imagining that it's not, it's not as if, you know, when a character goes off screen, they cease to exist. You know, there, there's like a... The, the kind of like the, I mean, so the, the, the cliche thing is, is to um, kind of um, distinguish between um, storytelling and world building. You, you hear a lot of this in the case of like science fiction, um, but here it, it, it's also relevant because I, I think the world has been, has achieved a certain or is achieving a certain kind of resolution that makes us like kind of uh, like ponder like what is happening at any given moment. What is each character doing? Uh, and I think that's kind of an interesting way to to approach this material. Do you want to discuss at all the some of the kind of ceremonies during this forty nine day period? The the um, there are these quite vivid descriptions of um, the the kind of priests, the the people performing the ceremonies. You know, chasing the going into going into hell and defeating the the demon king, and you know. Um, making prayers for the souls of the departed, that kind of thing. Right, right. Um, and so we discussed, you know, in the original episodes, a lot of these, like, really, like, rich details. Um, and, you know, we're, we're going to talk soon about the the passage to the... Um, um, what, is, what does Hawks render? The, the Temple of the Iron Threshold. And it's also... A, a lot of these um, these kind of belief systems are, are going to reemerge in the... In the the, the subsequent death of uh, Ching Ching's brother, Chin uh, Zhong. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll get to see some of this for ourselves, right? Um, yeah. Well, so, as mentioned, Jia Zhen's wife, Yu Shi, um, she's unable to... She, she, she's not making public appearances because of, apparently, the flare-up of some old illness. Um, but, you know, as we alluded to, if it was the case that she discovered her husband was having an affair with uh, their daughter-in-law, um, <laughs> that might also be uh, a reason why she wouldn't mm. want to show her face in public. Um, uh, and so, <clears throat> because she's unable to perform those duties, unable or unwilling to, um, Shi Feng is drafted in instead to, to kind of uh, take her place. And... As we know already, she's a very able, kind of capable um, administrator within her part of the of the mansion. So you know, we we talked about this before. The the there are two branches. There's the Rongguo branch and the Ningguo branch. And so Xifeng is m a member of that that Rongguo branch, and she's now coming over to the Ningguo side um, to kind of help things run smoothly um and she does we think a very uh you know competent job but we see that she's a very kind of strict disciplinarian 
uh, with the staff. Um, she um, mm -hmm. she takes really kind of no prisoners. Um, um, and so at long last, this 49-day mourning period is over. Uh, and so the procession leads out from the Jia mansion to a temple outside of the city known as the Tie Kan Si, the Temple of the Iron Threshold. Mm -hmm. um, and mourners turn out along the route, lining the kind of the streets the procession is following. And among these mourners is a royal prince, the Prince of Beijing, which are the northern peace. Um, and so mm -hmm. the procession stops to greet him because this is a great kind of uh, honor that's being bestowed upon them. And during this, this stop, um, there's a brief exchange between the prince and Bao Yu, where the prince gives him a gift, um, a string of uh, aromatic uh, beads that he wears around his wrist, um, and he invites Bao Yu to come visit him sometime. Um, and then the procession proceeds onwards, and eventually arrives at the at the temple. Um, now, upon arrival at the temple, uh, a formal funeral is held. Kerching's body is laid to rest, and most of the mourners depart. But three of them remain. Um, Xifeng, our protagonist, Bao Yu, and his friend, uh, Keqing's younger brother, Qin Zhong. Um, so the three of them stay several nights at the nearby Watermoon Priory. Uh, which is essentially yeah, it's a, a kind of nunnery attached to the temple and so in this section we we learn a bit more about each of these three characters um, um, I should mention that on the way to the, the temple of the iron threshold they, they have a brief kind of stop off in a, in a village along the way right um, and there um Mm -hmm. Yeah, they kind of swoop in to this, you know, out of the way, almost kind of a hamlet, um, <clears throat> just a few farmhouses. And um, ostensibly they're just there to kind of, you know, rest for a moment, stretch their legs, because uh, it's, I suppose, a long journey. And um, Bao Yu and Qin Zhong um, are given a tour of the farm. And one of the things they see is a spinning wheel which is currently midway through through kind of spinning, um, I guess, cotton or, or wool, maybe. Um, Bao Yu goes to touch it, and he is shooed away, I suppose, by a, a young peasant girl of about 17 or 18, um, who tells him that he mustn't touch it because he'll, he'll damage the, the thread um, if he doesn't know what he's doing. And, um, yeah, we see that this is has quite a strong kind of impression on him and he's still kind of thinking of her and looking back over his shoulder as they leave when he sees her also standing in you know nearby looking out in his direction and they have a yeah a brief passing moment and then we think they never see each other again but this i guess kind of is one of the many testaments to that sort of romantic quality in Yu's character uh, for sure yeah you know and obviously his quality of always kind of <laughs> chasing anything and everything he can get his hands on um, male or female um, so anyway going on while they're at the, the temple 
um, we we learn a bit about Qian Zhong, Bao Yu's friend. So he's romantically involved with a nun initiate, so a, a kind of uh, almost a sort of trainee nun, as it were, at the Watermoon Priory. She's known in the in the Hawks translation as Sapientia or Zhenar in the Chinese. So because the, the Jia family sponsors the priory, the nuns often visit the Jia mansion. And it's during that time that Sapientia and Qianzhong have got to know each other and, and develop these feelings for each other. Um, during the visit, um, Qianzhong spends a bit of time with her. And in one scene, he, he kind of attempts to have sex with her um, in a scene that I think is probably at, at best coercive and at, weren't, at worst comes across as extremely non-consensual um, and in that moment they're interrupted by, by Bao Yu who perhaps jealous of Qian Zhong's feelings for Sapientia uh, decides to quote-unquote settle accounts with Qian Zhong which in turn seems to be a clear reference to the two of them having sex um, and then we also learn something about Xifeng. So she, in conversation with the abbess, so the kind of head nun in charge of the priory, um, the abbess asks Xifeng to help out with a slightly delicate matter. Now this is the, the daughter of a family that um, sponsors another one of the, of the kind of temples. This, uh, this daughter... Um, is at the center of a, a kind of um, struggle between two competing suitors. So two young men are both competing for a hand in marriage. Now the parents of the woman in question are, yeah, as we said, large donors. Um, mm -hmm. And they very much prefer one of the men over the other. So the one that they don't prefer is uh, an army captain. And they've asked if... Xifeng can use her family's influence to speak to this army captain's superior officer, uh, a general, uh, and ask him to intervene to get the, the captain to cease his kind of pursuit of this young woman. Um, Xifeng is initially reluctant, um, but the abbess appeals to her pride, um, and Xifeng agrees to help for... Uh, 3,000 tails of silver, which is a kind of princely sum. Uh, anyway, she is able to wield her influence to dissuade the captain, but it ends very badly for everyone except Xifeng. So the woman mm -hmm. at the center of the dispute, whose, whose feelings we never learn and, and seemingly are never considered, uh, she commits suicide. Uh, then just finally, after the three of them return from this temple, uh, Sapientia flees the priory to be with Qianzhong, uh, but she's discovered by Qin Zhong's father, a very strict man, Qin Bangye, who forbids her from the house, and he beats Qin Zhong. Uh, and the whole episode is so kind of shocking to him that it brings on a recurrence of his old illness, and he dies. Qin Zhong, meanwhile, you know, having been beaten, having seen his his love, you know, um, cast out of the house, and uh, in shock over his father's death he also dies soon after um, and we see as you mentioned the scene where Bao Yu follows Qin Zhong into, into death, into the underworld hoping to have a final conversation with him but 
ultimately it's mm-hmm. it's futile and so it's really amazing that uh i i guess we can take these series of of events and kind of imagine that this is a just a noteworthy trip, you know, out of, you know, the kind of seclusion and security. Uh, and so, like, he's usually kind of, um, you know, like, cloistered in his own sort of um, uh, position and, and kind of, like, his, like, you know, constant access to luxury and his distance from any of the, the travails or, or dangers of, you know, like, the, the quote-unquote real world, you know, around him. Uh, and so it, it's, it's striking that on this one trip, which is, you know, it's only meant to yeah. be, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, trip to the country one day as a result of, of, of this, like this one trip, how many people die Four, <laughs> if, you, if you think about, you know, the two uh, people, the, the yeah. two uh, people associated with, um, Shifeng's, uh, meddlings and then, and then Qin Zhong and, uh, his father or both both kind of die indirectly from events that you know um yeah are kind of set in train are connected yeah are set in motion during this this fun trip to the country yeah i forgot Um, to say that as a as a result of shifang's meddling not only does the woman at the center of the dispute uh commit suicide but then also another young man commits suicide but it's neither suitor a nor suitor b it's Strangely enough, it's the son of the captain, so the son of one of the two suitors. And he seems to just be a particularly kind of romantic, uh, emotional soul. This confused us. That this confused us the first time around. My question, I guess, my like my follow-up question is: if we're trying to like uh, sort of theorize the significance of this trip, is it a question of you know the outside world, quote unquote? is simply that dangerous that you if you do any kind of like uh, dealings with um you know like on the street or just you know in everyday life that you are you know you're putting yourself at tremendous risk such that one trip can lead to four deaths or is it is it a case of um kind of the the interaction between these different levels of society, that's actually the, the location of danger and uncertainty and, you know, meddling and, and conspiracy. Like, is it the fact that, you know, um, you know, that, that, that simply because Shi Feng has this power over uh, so many people in society that she's able to like uh, wield it and, and there's just inevitably going to be um, kind of like, uh, like, untoward consequences of this power you know I'm, I'm just trying to like kind of uh conceptualize you know what's what's the danger here right i i tend towards the second yeah i tend towards that second interpretation that you're right it's kind of about the interaction between yeah people of in differing um yeah levels of of power um i think maybe the reason for uh, Qin Zhong's father reacting in such an extreme way is that he, <coughs> their very low status within the, the wider kind of Jia household, um, and so maybe he feels more kind of keenly or sharply the, the, I don't know, a kind of shame or fear about this this nun absconding from the, 
you know the nunnery which is sponsored by the family uh-huh. after all you know they're the kind of patrons of it um and running off to be with his son for whom he you know considers himself responsible um, and and there is this like it's kind of a, it's kind of interesting that in each case you know there is this this question of of thresholds and the the danger of thresholds i'm always remembered to kind of to get back to this question of like the difficulty of uh, establishing causality like the the example i use is that you know there on one hand there are these um kind of superstitions around you know you shouldn't walk underneath a ladder um but at the same time like if you walk underneath a ladder that's actually dangerous and so like the, the, this um this kind of like superstructural kind of ideological belief is grafted on like a reality uh, of good prudence and so uh, I want to relate that in a way to like uh, what, what's happening uh, in, in this chapter where like, yeah. you know, they're passing outside the garden uh, and they're going to, again, the, the gate of the iron threshold, right? Which is supposed to be this, um, this space to, to navigate the, uh, the, you know, the, um, the transition from living to dying or living to death. You know, it's supposed to help your soul uh, uh, na- like transnavigate properly. Um, but at the same time, like there, there's a certain danger in these positions. And so there's a danger that, you know, uh, you know, that, that Chinjong will be, a, you know, will fall in love with, um, you know, a nun who is supposedly, uh, you know, committed to chastity. Right. And as, as you know, as a representative of this, of this transitional moment, there has to be this like kind of, it's like purity of the position. Right. Um, at the same time that, uh, yeah, like Chin Jong and Chin Ka Ching are, are trying to navigate the, the social difference between, uh, between them and, and the Jia, uh, family, right? And, and, and in, in the end, it's, you know, it, it seems unsuccessful more or less. Um, and so that, that seems to be like, that, that seems to be like a, a kind of a, prevailing theme here uh, like the the, the the crossing of boundaries uh maybe the excitement of being in this um indeterminate zone where maybe there is some freedom and nobody's watching you you can you can but at the same time the, the consequences the danger associated with being in a space that's neither a nor b but kind of both a and b and neither a nor b that's kind of like the the logic like the, the kind of like the, the logical manifestation of this danger and this uh uncertainty well you mentioned this you mentioned this threshold between life and death what what about the scene where um Qin Zhong is dying and, and Dayu has to well Dayu chooses to go into death to to see you know to, to see him one more time right uh, or Bao Yu right but I'm oh, sorry Bao Yu rather yeah yeah Bao Yu. I did, did I say well Bao she's Yu. the death expert so that's a that's a <laughs> a reasonable mistake but yeah. yeah exactly another example of this like this like threshold this like kind of um liminal quote-unquote moment and, and bao yu on account of his having this uh magical jade that the the underworld uh bureaucrats are like afraid of he's able to cross the boundary one last time just for a moment to kind of reconnect with uh his dear friend um yeah yeah it's funny right because a few chapters previously, when he meets the Prince of Beijing, the prince asks to see the jade, and he reads it, and it has this inscription on it, you know, which is, as long as you don't lose this or give it away, it will bring the bearer 
protection from evil spirits, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the prince asks, does it really have this effect? And Jia Zhong, Bao Yu's father, says, supposedly, but, you know, <laughs> he seems to have a kind of rational, skeptical yeah. view of the thing. Yeah. Um, but we do here actually get to see it um, used out, tried out, you know. <laughs> For <laughs> like, sure. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so I guess that's that's kind of the, the, the bulk of my comments. Do you have any other kind of um, reflections? Uh, no, I don't think I have anything else to add there. Okay. Um, well. Let's go into the next part of the of the narrative. So, okay. so around the same time, two characters who had been absent uh, re-enter the story. Uh, so they're Xi Feng's husband, Jia Lian, and Bao Yu's cousin and kind of key love interest, Lin Daiyu. Um, <coughs> so what had happened is Daiyu's mother dies very early on in the narrative and her father, Lin Ruhai, sends her to live with the rest of her family who would be able to do a kind of better job of raising her. Mm-hmm. Um, and he'd fallen sick some time ago uh, and so Daiyu, accompanied by Jia Lian, go south to to visit him. Um, and despite her, uh, you know, her care, um, her father does die. Um, and she returns to the capital with Jia Lian, heartbroken at the loss of her, her one remaining parent. Um, her return is this source of great joy for Bao Yu, who has kind of anxiously waited for her, uh, for news of her. Um, and we see from this moment onward, I really think, that there's this increase in the depth of feeling between the two of them uh, and a corresponding increase in kind of teenage awkward misunderstandings and arguments. Um, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's during one of those arguments that we first meet the character, Shi uh, Xiangyun, another cousin of the family. Uh, she's a cousin through um, Bao Yu's grandmother, uh, Grandmother Jia. Um, and uh yeah she's she's a couple of years younger than the rest and she's very kind of lively intelligent and, and tomboyish mm-hmm. as a character um I, I wanted to ask i mean when i was reading back through this i was really struck by how dayu's return from um seeing her father um is the moment at which hers and bayu's relationship really begins to develop this new dimension do you also see it as a kind of turning point or is it some other some other stage that's more important? Yeah, I, I think I kind of agree with that interpretation. Um, it makes a lot of sense. It's very natural. We have the, you know, the, the expression absence makes the heart uh, grow fonder, right? And this is kind of a, a classic case of that. Um, and yet, yeah, do we see, is this the first, like um, her return and then the kind of the values uh, fumbling of of the gift giving, right? He uh, he actually pawns off effectively uh, the oh, prince yeah. of Beijing's uh, the rosary, um, like the what what Hawks calls rosary beads that he um, meditation beads, let's say that he um, that he gave Bao Yu, um, and and so yeah, this might be one of the. Yeah. I don't know. Is this the first like really good like um, 
uh, kind of like oblique argument like session, <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, I think I think it's definitely one of them, right? She, um, we we know that they've always kind of squabbled before, mm-hmm. but perhaps in a more kind of childlike way. Um, she, having returned from the south, has brought gifts for everyone, including for Balu, and he, you know, realizing that he has nothing else, you know, nothing to hand to offer her. Yeah, he he makes a gift of that, um, the set of prayer beads or meditation beads, and um, she's not pleased at all. No, to no. It, it's perceived as far too masculine. Mm. Uh, it's it's simply not appropriate for for their interactions. Um, so this is one of our first like real major Pao Yu fails, I think. <laughs> There'll be many more to come. Um, <laughs> um, how about Xiang Yun? Do we want to? Is there anything worth saying about her here? Um, I, I think we, we get the first. There's an emphasis on her. They, they kind of uh, tease her for um, having a s- speech impediment. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, which yeah. is again maybe associated with age, not with any kind of. Um, uh, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't uh, seem inability. to crop up after this initial um, reference. So maybe she does grow out of it. And, and she's, you know, it's it's not about education or anything. Um, she's she kind of proves herself in in later uh, like poetry yeah. battles. Yeah, to be very much the equal of uh, the others in terms of kind of erudition and intelligence. Yeah, I mean, exceeding, actually, everyone except uh, Bao Yu and Bao Chai, or uh, meeting yeah. them on their level. Uh, or, or rather, Dai Yu and Bao Chai. Um, oh, ex- yeah, that's what I meant to say, yeah. Bao Yu and, and Dai Yu are so uh, intertwined, <laughs> it's impossible <laughs> just not to slip just... slip over um, the names, right? We've both done Yeah, that. yeah, you have to... It's it's not a Freudian slip. It's more like a like a, like just the unconscious, um, uh, just strumming a guitar, and you have to just yeah. pick up on the frequencies. So um, the next really kind of big chunk of the narrative here is um, well, it begins with a rider from the Imperial Palace. Um, he comes by my memory. My by my memory, he comes riding in on a horse, and he doesn't dismount as would be normal. He just gives the message that Jia Zhang is to report at once to the emperor, and then he rides off. Um, anyway, the whole thing throws the household into um, a frenzy, really. I mean, that being summoned by the emperor like this um, is normally not a cause for you know, celebration. It probably pretends something terrible. Um, but in this case, it is actually good. So, uh, after many frantic messengers have been sent back and forth trying to find out what's going on, the message at last does come through, which is that Jia Zhang's daughter, the older sister of our protagonist, Bao Yu, Jia Yuan Chun, is going to be selected as um, a concubine to the emperor. So, she's going to be kind of one step below wife, as it were. Um, And... So this is really a, a big deal. A member of the Jia family is going to be part of the imperial household. Um, and so this is really a... In that dream sequence when Ke Qing talks about the, this very happy event that's going to befall the family, this is it. Um, and mm-hmm. um, So the emperor also issues a further decree 
that all concubines should be permitted to return home from time to time. Um, so the Jia family, in order to have a, an appropriate venue for receiving Yuan Chun, they decide to construct a vast, luxurious garden within the, the grounds of their mansion, uh, replete with its own temple and a troupe of child actors. Um, so this, mm -hmm. you know, design and construction and procuring actors and nuns and all sorts of flowers and plants and the like takes many months and no doubt enormous expense um mm. <clears throat> but at last it is finished and and this is this is kind of the the materialization of their um of their newfound you know opportunity uh for like social advancement so this is a, a like a, a really powerful family that you know is actually e ascending even further yeah. Uh, and so they're gonna they're gonna create this garden to kind of um, commemorate that um, possibility, mm. uh, and, and also in a sense to advertise yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're right. You're right. It doesn't just serve a practical function in terms of a venue for receiving Yuan Chun. It has the, as you say, this powerful symbolic quality. Um, and so it's kind of interesting because it's a, it's a private garden, but it, it's kind of in a sense a, a public symbol. I guess all symbols are public, right? Like all languages, no real private languages. Um, but there is this like um, this, this again this tension between inner and outer. Uh, that's kind of um, and so Yuan Chun kind of you know she leaves in a way that's similar to the way Chinka Ching leaves in, in a sense, you know, but whereas Chinka Ching passes beyond an iron threshold. Uh, I guess you could say uh, Yuan Chun. She, uh, she like. We we we've referred to her new position as a kind of gilded cage. Um, you could also say maybe it's a like a, a jade threshold to the extent that jade is associated with the emperor. Um, yeah, yeah. And so there's actually kind of a this this like uh, like strange parallel between uh, the death of Chinka Ching and the marriage of. Um, of Yuan Chun, which I, I think speaks yeah, to this kind of like the dialectics of this novel, in the same way that you know we saw at we saw at the the Temple of the Iron Threshold that you know at the same time that this um the the funeral was being arranged, uh, a, a marriage was being schemed over, right? And so there was this like contrast before also uh, between life and death, between um, entering into a, like a, a living union and and you know and you know, I guess reconvening with the spirits after death. Um, yeah, that's a really good point. It's not what I considered, um, but it's it's true. It's a, there's something similar going on here. Um, do you have any other kind of impressions, or what do you think? I think you kind of commented on it. It's uh, particularly on Yuan Chun's golden cage, gilded cage. You know, she's she. Okay. There's absolutely no question of her refusing, um, and. Certainly, she herself must feel some level of, um, I guess, feeling kind of honored to be chosen uh, for this role. But at the same time, maybe she had other plans. Maybe she actually wanted to be married to a, yeah. you know, a partner who would be kind of more her equal, um, rather than just being a kind of... I mean, the life of the concubine, I suppose, it's you're kind of there, you, you live this secluded quite limited life a lot of the time until the emperor chooses to visit you and when he comes to visit it's for sex 
and it maybe also is for a degree of companionship but otherwise you're really kind of left to your own devices um maybe you're almost it's interesting that you know like Yuan Chun within the Jia clan is she's like she transforms into a garden in a sense you know she becomes this like ideal space it's kind of this representation of an ideal space at the same time that as a concubine she's also sort of in this she like she's almost like a living representation right like she's like 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 her beauty is like in the same way that like you know uh uh, like, like this is this is a, again a question of wealth and power. The same way that the wealthy will procure beautiful artwork and then hang it privately, she's like basically the human version of that. Um, right. Yeah. And, and so, like, it's the, the it's clear that the, uh, this position comes with a lot of um, like psychological, you know, burden. To put it to put it lightly, that's mm. kind of like, mm. yeah. Yeah, and I think she does struggle with that. Um, speaking of speaking of the garden, um, you know, this is there's this construction going on, but it eventually is finished. And once it's done, they have to uh, go around and, and kind of name the different parts of the garden. So um, we said a lot before at the time that the the concept of the garden in Chinese culture is very different from the way it's perceived in kind of Europe or the West um, you know it's a, a lot about um, it's almost kind of like coquettish in a way the the garden it doesn't show its whole self at once mm. it reveals small parts to you slowly um, you know like giving you a, a kind of peephole or lifting up some kind of flap yeah um, yeah it, it, so you have to journey through it to really experience it there's no like there's no one point where it can be perceived in its totality it's like it's kind of like a journey. The journey is really like uh, the space itself. Um, um, and yeah. so each one of these different parts, the different views, the different kind of little structures must be given its own name. And to accompany that name, there must be a, a little poem to go with it. So there's this this trip around the garden by our protagonist, Bao Yu, his father, Jia Zhong. And Jia Zhong's um literary gentlemen as we call them his kind of paid hangers on you know uh his his sycophants mm-hmm. um and the whole episode plays out in a series of episodes uh, sorry the whole passage i guess plays out in a series of short episodes where um <laughs> they reach somewhere Bali suggests a name and a poem for it and his suggestions are universally praised by the literary gentleman and kind of sneered at and dismissed by his father. <laughs> um, um, so we really see that mm-hmm. that relationship kind of one-on-one. Um, anyway, with the garden kind of appropriately named, at least provisionally, uh, we have the visit of Yuan Chun. Um, and there's this enormous sense of expectation around the household. Everyone gets very smartly dressed uh, they all kind of line up outside waiting for her to arrive. And there's at least, I think, one anticlimactic, anticlimactic um, moment where they're waiting and then a messenger comes from the palace and says, oh, she won't be ready for hours, you know, go back inside. Like, right. You know, um, uh, but she does eventually show up. Um, 
and they have to perform various kind of ceremonial rites um, given her, her new status. But once those are done, they're finally able to kind of relax together mm -hmm. and, and enjoy one another's company. Um, so they spend the time visiting different parts of the garden um, uh, and appraising Balyu's poetic attempts while they do. Um, they also kind of compose some more poetry of their own to commemorate the occasion. Um, and they visit the temple to make uh, offerings. Um, I I was asked a question the other day, which was, um, <clears throat> what does Yuan Chun's visit to the garden signify? Um, and I was kind of stumped hmm. by this, um, but I wanted to put the question to you to see if you... Oh, wow, answer. yeah. I, I mean, y you could say that on one level, you know, it's, it's simply important. It's It's... It's a part of this, you know, like cultural system, and, and I, I, maybe all like everyone has to visit their parents, you know, in every cultural system. I can imagine that's a like a, a fairly common value, um, and so on a certain level, it's simply something that she has to do in terms of like symbolism. Then, um, that's really that's really a good question because I, you know, like I guess as a reader. Like I'm, I'm, I'm so used to Yuan Chun being subjected to all this, like, uh, like, like, symbolic labor, you could say, uh, that like I'm like I'm yeah. like when when she returns, just my like my like basic humanity like doesn't want her treat her as uh, a means to represent more things. Like hasn't she hasn't she represented you wanna, yeah, enough? You to you know? <laughs> yeah, you want to just recognize her? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, well, I mean, it was a difficult question. Um, for me, I just thought that this perhaps is the single high point for the for the family in the entire book. Um, it, it's not going to oh, be a dramatic okay. fall after this, as we'll see. But I don't think there's a any other point at which their star rises so high as this. Um, um, and as the narrative progresses, we'll see that it it falls very far indeed. And this also, to me, feels like a, a moment where, uh, like, all of a sudden, uh, you realize you can't go back. Um, it, it's like, I think only upon returning do you realize that you can't return, kind of thing. Uh, and that, that's basically what this whole experience is. Yeah. Like, this is yeah. Yuan Chun, like, enjoying the garden, but realizing that her childhood is, like... A thing of the past you know it's only uh it's it's the only remnants of it are in her uh like limited personal interactions with um with her siblings right which maybe is is the reason why the uh the subsequent uh riddle games that they they, they kind of they, they send back and forth um is so important because it's it's a way for them to uh, maintain some kind of communication that is appropriate to their new stations in life, but also uh, kind of um, even in a symbolic capacity preserves, you know, like the like the substance of their uh, interactions simply as siblings. I think. So um, so after this in, this imperial visit, which. I do, yeah, I do kind of agree. It has that quality of, it, it. I think everyone has experienced that sometime, right? There's a there's a point in your life at which, maybe you you move out of your parents' home or you you go off to study somewhere, or you go off to work or or whatever, um, 
and then you come back and you realize that you can never kind of go home again um it, it's that but i think just to a a more intense degree it's you know it's really similar you see this in, in TV shows constantly. Uh, the, the kid comes back from college and their parents has converted their bedroom to, you know, like to something, something different, like a, a study or something. But this is a little different because they they have technically gotten like, yeah, I guess like, yeah, like they, they've constructed this ima- like uh, intense garden, right? But like in the process, you know, they've basically... Uh, they put this huge just, distance between themselves. Yeah, and her. like her room is probably no longer there anymore. You know, it's been maybe it's been repurposed. Uh, so, so it's 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 actually really relatable, even though yeah, most of yeah, we don't all have uh, quite as elaborate gardens. Okay, so following this visit, we have a kind of in between period, um, and I think it's around Lunar New Year, so kind of January February time, um, and this is this this time when everyone is at rest and kind of at a loose end. Um, so one day Bao Yu discovers his manservant, uh, Tea Leaf, he's known as in the Hawks, uh, Mingyan in the Chinese, uh, having sex with another servant in deserted study. Um, he, Bao Yu, you know, grabs him and takes him away. So he's, he's got, you know, a track record now for interrupting other people having sex. Uh, he he grabs him and takes him away to visit his own maid, Aroma, Hua Xiren, uh, who that day is um, at her family home nearby. Now, Bao Yu imagines it will be a kind of friendly visit, but the Hua family are unable to relax in, in the presence of a, a master, um, and so he, he soon leaves. Um, around about this time, we see several efforts by Aroma to... <coughs> try to, you know, improve Bayou's errant behavior through various means, uh, including giving him the silent treatment and threatening to quit. Um, Bayou is characteristically overblown in his, you know, his promises in response to this, uh, and characteristically, he's very bad at following through with those promises, um, much to Aroma's frustration. We also see some of the, the tensions that exist between different members of the family and, and the servants. So in two separate scenes, a servant named Nanny Lee kind of makes a fool of herself by becoming very angry over nothing. Um, she was <laughs> she was once Bayou's wet nurse, um, and so therefore a very important servant. Um, but she's now become kind of irrelevant, um, but now that he's kind of outgrown her. Um, and she clearly feels the pain of her reduced status, um, particularly compared to someone like Aroma, who has gone from being a, a very lowly servant to quite an important one um, during the same period. Um, we also see some tension between Bao Yu and his younger half-brother, Jia Huan. So whereas Bao Yu's mother is his father's wife, Lady Wang, Jia Huan's mother is his father's concubine. Uh, so this distinction, which seems to be lost on Bao Yu, is definitely not lost on Jia Huan, and is kind of the source of um, really serious feelings of inferiority for him. 
um, and we'll see that this uh, this feelings of inferiority really bubble over several times during the story but the first time is here uh, he's he's playing I think cards or dice with some of the other members of the of the household uh, and although he initially does well he ends up losing more or less everything uh, and he throws a tantrum um, and during this tantrum Balyu tries to offer uh, you know some words of brotherly advice but his words are not well received and all he does is enrage Jia Huan um, I, I honestly think it's a great example of just how completely you know ham-fisted a lot of what he does is though um, you know it's not very <laughs> it's not very helpful what he says right he says if you're not having a good time here why not just go and do something else kind of thing you know he tries to kind of l think it through logically um, um, yeah it, it really kind of reflects somebody who lacks a sense for like context and for how like words have different like connotations in different circumstances uh yeah. it, it, it betrays someone who i guess you know maybe due to this kind of intense privilege uh like hasn't really had to deal with um like thinking too much about the implications of what you say and how you say them uh and and so like Bao Yu comes off in this moment as like almost like deep and philosophical or like you think that's what he <laughs> perceives himself as but like any ordinary person would would perceive him uh just being like inconsiderate or maybe even sarcastic it's like a, a complete uh it's kind of an interesting kind of disconnect between like appearance and like uh like intention and appearance i think yeah yeah absolutely and i mean he'll he'll make an ass of himself in a similar way a few more times um, um <laughs> i wanted to talk briefly about the nanny lee uh episode uh, um, okay um because I, I think it's maybe the third instance of um this this thing of formerly important servants finding themselves almost kind of chewed up and spat out mm -hmm. um you know we see that first with uh, Jiao Da, mm -hmm. Big Jiao, Jiao yeah. in Chapter 7, who was he used to be absolutely number one top manservant to Jia Jing, I think, the, the patriarch, in name at least of the Ningguo branch of the family but now that he's old and Jia Jing has kind of given up on the material world to go and be a Taoist um, <laughs> Jiao Da finds himself kind of cast out um, um, uh, and now is mostly just a, a drunkard who periodically gets angry and, and blurts out family secrets. <laughs> um, and we also saw in an earlier chapter, Nanny Zhao. So this is Jia Lian's wet nurse. Okay. Um, she too says that he doesn't... Her particular complaint is that he doesn't do anything to help her own sons. So mm -hmm. because she's, she was wet nurse to Jia Lian, i.e. she breastfed him... Um, he and her own sons who she would have breastfed herself um i, I guess somehow seem to have some kind of like uh fraternal type um link or, or relationship right uh -huh. um, mm -hmm. and 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 so so again she you know her complaint is basically that that now that he's all grown up he never thinks of her um 
and her sons. Um, and again, the same is true of, of Nanny, Nanny Lee. Mm-hmm. She is, um, yeah, she feels kind of used up and, and cast aside. Uh, I mean, we've mentioned it before, but it, it's obviously like an incredibly, incredibly intimate thing being a wet nurse, you know, breastfeeding a child, um, one who's not your own. You presumably mm-hmm. do form this this kind of bond, um, and yeah, yeah, that, that a kind of intense embodiment to this, to the affair, to the to the like professional relationship. It's like marked in uh, like bodily fluids. In you know, actually, in a way similar to how uh, like for for Big Jow, one of his uh, like his shiny moments as a servant was when he forego uh, drinking water. Uh, and I think he, he, he drank horse urine instead yeah. so that uh, his master could, could drink clean water. Yes, it's it's the same way. These like, um, these like uh, moments of intimacy are like embodied in, in kind of weird, almost uncomfortable ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, I suppose like if you were to, give blood to someone else or an organ or something you know it's same it's, idea yeah, it's that right? level of intensity yeah. right and yeah and so definitely the feeling of being ignored or cast off i think must sting very painfully um, um so maybe yeah it, it's almost as if some of these these like uh these wronged servants are themselves sort of like uh i, I don't know like akin to like ghosts haunting the family right yeah and they kind of yeah. um maybe you, you could even you could even maybe render it in like karmic terms right the like the, <laughs> the, the writing is on the wall you know this this family is destined for a fall mm-hmm. well i mean they there's a thing that they like to say about how they you know treat their servants well but here we have at least a few instances of that not really being true Yes, um, right. A- another divergence between this reputation and the actual reality, right? Um, not to mention, uh, uh, I guess we're going to talk later yeah. about what happens to Golden. Um, um, although I think that is outside the that's outside this particular section. But but keep listening. Yeah, keep, I know, I know. But just yeah, yeah. in terms of the the, the grander listeners um, should keep listening to yeah. find out more. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, so one day we have a a uh, a message from the Imperial Palace, uh, and it's from Yuan Chun, and she's she sent a riddle for the family to solve. Uh, so she asks each of them to send her what they think the answer is, and then to. Um, send a riddle of their own uh, in response. <clears throat> and um, this kind of sparks an interest in riddles from the whole family. Um, and uh, so there's a kind of riddle party that takes place. And from these riddles, we gain some insight into, you know, the the nature of each character and, the, and their future. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Similar to the... the 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 cryptic dreams from chapter five, um, I, I think it's a strong uh, kind of parallel between the dream poems of chapter five and the uh, kind of the the riddles. Yeah, kind of foretelling, right? Um, yeah. Um, 
in this same section, there's also a party for Balchai, who is turning 15, which is a kind of threshold age for a girl at the time. Uh, and so... Yes, there are another, more, more thresholds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so there's lots of, you know, feasting and plays for her. Uh, now, during the party, Balchai sings an aria to Balyu from one of her favorite plays, uh, which kind of sparks this this interest on his part in 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 kind of the plays and the various things associated with it. Um, after the plays are finished, several of the actors come to to kind of meet the family and talk to them. And as we mentioned, they're they're kids; they're like nine, ten years old. Um, anyway, uh, Wang Xifeng makes a kind of sideways comment about one of them, resembling a certain someone, but doesn't say who. Uh, and everyone kind of gets the joke, but nobody says who they're thinking of, except for Xiang Yun, who, being younger and possibly <laughs> less tactful, blurts out that she must mean Dai Yu. And as she's saying that, Bao Yu gives her this, we think, kind of stern look to try to dissuade her, but it's too late. Mm -hmm. Now, in doing so, he somehow manages to upset both Dai Yu and Xiang Yun, with I think basically Xiang Yun feeling embarrassed at having put her foot in it, and Dai Yu thinking that Bao Yu was kind of embarrassed on her behalf. Um, now this episode and others cause Bao Yu to delve more deeply into various philosophies, including Taoism and um, uh, what's known as Chan or, or Zen Buddhism, mm -hmm. um, albeit in a rather kind of superficial way. And he sees in these philosophies some vindication for his kind of perceived mistreatment by Dayu mm -hmm. and others. Um, and in doing so, he, he writes various kind of attempts at philosophizing. Um, and these are invariably discovered by Dayu and Balchai, who read them and mock him mercilessly for them. But, uh, you know, Balyu takes it all in, in good humor. Yeah, he had thought he had achieved enlightenment, but he... Like uh, he fails so completely, and <laughs> and like the next, um, they pose a series of questions for him, uh, like subsequent questions to test his uh, appreciation for the the value of inaction, right? Because the whole idea was that he he did something in a moment when he really should have just done nothing, you know, he 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 should have mm -hmm. embraced uh, like Uwei, the the Taoist um, inaction yeah. that. Uh, gets talked about too much probably um <laughs> to be honest um and but he like his uh yeah his understanding is uh like level one beginner mode and he's not ready yeah, for definitely for fighting real monsters um <laughs> no, no. he can't even yeah he can't even handle Dayu. he can't handle you know like He's still um, yet covered in mortal dust. Yeah. His feelings of enlightenment it. are definitely misplaced. Um, there is one funny bit I remember where he, he writes this yeah, attempt at um, a form of kind of philosophical text. And then thinking that people won't be able to understand it, he also includes an explanatory note afterwards. Um, so that others can can kind of comprehend his truly the profundity of his thoughts. Always, always a sign of high artistry when you include an exp an explanation 
it's so good <laughs> it's so it captures so perfectly that like pompous quality that some teenagers have um it's like yeah like, like yeah uh it's like adding footnotes to your painting or something you know? <laughs> yeah so true so true um and so what else happens uh we we have the arrival of uh, a new member of the family a daughter to Wang Xifeng and Jia Lian um and when she's still a baby she falls ill with uh, smallpox um and as part of this just sorry just as an aside she isn't named at this point she will be later in the story but we'll get to that in good time um um so she yeah she catches smallpox and as part of the the cure for smallpox there are all these kind of rituals that are required to be followed um and one of them is that her parents are um they must abstain from sex for 12 days now Xifeng we assume succeeds in doing so but Jialian repeatedly fails um he has sex first with some of his manservants and then when he gets bored of them he takes after um or rather sort of shacks up with um a female household servant who is kind of known to be highly promiscuous um, yes the mattress in the hawks um, translation the mattress as she's known in in hawks yeah yeah uh in chinese I think she's like yeah, Miss uh, Miss Moore, many. Little Miss Moore, something like that. <coughs> Madam Madam Many. Oh yeah, Miss Many. Maybe. Okay. Madam Lots. <laughs> anyway, um, um, and so despite Jalian's um, failing to observe this uh, this ritual abstinence, the their daughter does recover, um, but. Wang Xifeng's chief maidservant, uh, Ping R, known in the Hawks as Patience, um, <coughs> she discovers uh, a woman's hair in mm-hmm. um, Jialian's bed. Um, and so there's this kind of tense standoff between him and her, where he first tries to play nice, um, and then subsequently snatches the hair away from her. Um, and then, for good measure, he tries to sexually assault her. Um, so we really, in this, in this part of the chapter, get a a very good impression of um, um, yes, yeah, Jalian's character. He comes across rather um, negatively. Um. He does, yeah, he does. Um, I, I I do think that because this is a I think a lot of the characters are supposed to be kind of representative in a way, um, and he certainly feels like a, a familiar kind of character archetype. Yes, the unfaithful, um, uh, you know, uh, husband. Yeah. Uh, paired with the you know the scheming wife, although she's not really scheming. Um, her, what we know of her schemes so far have been mostly in terms of like economic uh, advantage. Yeah. Yeah. A little corruption, a little side hustle, um, but he, for his part, yeah, the the kind of very entitled, rich, um, noble, you know, who kind of yes. always gets what he wants, and if there's any risk mm-hmm. that he won't, he 
is willing to kind of stoop to uh yeah achieve mm -hmm. achieve um well what happens next we have um since your entrance visit the garden has been closed up again um <clears throat> there have been some servants inside tending to everything keeping it all looking nice but uh nobody else has really been allowed in um and she decides this is a real shame and it's there to be enjoyed you drew a kind of comparison before between Yuan and the garden itself, you know, her being representative in that way. And and certainly in the beginning, the, the comparison there is very, very apt. You know, she, yeah. in much the same way that she is kind of cooped up in her, in her gilded cage. Likewise, the, the garden, this thing of great beauty is kept cloistered away. Yeah. From, you know, yeah. If you're going to be a painting, at least be a painting that people like look at, I guess. Uh, so she decides it should be opened. Um. And she orders that all of the young women of the household and Baoyu, for good measure, should be allowed to live in it. Um, <clears throat> and I do think it's funny that he's kind of one of the girls in this way. Um, <laughs> it really does kind of speak to his character, which is... We said before, I think it's like... I think it's wrong... Or it's maybe inaccurate um, to describe him as being kind of transgender, but he certainly has this, like, he has a highly effeminate um, quality to him. Um, and, you know, he is uh, bisexual and rather kind of sort of like flamboyant. And certainly, like, he. <sighs> In his behavior, he drifts very, very far from the kind of um, standard expected of of men of the time, particularly of kind of young men of a noble household. You know, kind of highly unconventional in his behavior, certainly. Yes, I think there's two things going on here. Like on one hand, I, I simply think that uh, like we lack, like from our modern kind of Western perspective, we lack kind of vocabulary to describe people like Baoyu to the extent that you can say someone this is like a, a coherent uh, observable like form or pattern right but like the, we have talked about his his attraction he's, his, even from a young age his finding women to be like interpersonally but also even like aesthetically uh, like more appealing than men going back to yeah. the, the water mud uh, distinction and and yeah girls are water and they're clean right. and pure and boys are mud and they're kind of befouling and dirtying uh, um. at the same time though yeah I, I think that you know even for the standards of the time maybe Bao Yu was um, especially uh, kind of in touch with feminine um, energies I, in, in a kind of loose way I'd say yeah, he just he does have this quality of treating himself as one of the girls, considering himself one of the girls. So, I mean, when he he's kind of sneaks into uh, Dayu's bedroom one morning, um, when she and Xiang Yun are sleeping there, and he wants them to brush his hair, and he wants to brush their hair, and he wants to, you know, uh, wash his face in the same water with, as them with the same kind of soap and and that sort of thing. You know, he. And as we've seen before, you know, he has this great attraction to, to makeup. Um, right. Yeah. 
Um, uh, but but as you say, it's 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 hard to map onto our own um, sort of modern conception, both of like gender and sexuality. Um, yeah, you know, um, um, it doesn't it doesn't kind of match neatly. Um, no, no, definitely not. Um, at the same time, that everything seems kind of familiar, so it, it is in this sort of um, surreal. It's both like highly familiar and kind of um, distinct and different. Uh, and, and so it, it creates a, an interesting tension. I think it's, it actually makes the story pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think uh, so. Um, anyway, so they all move into the garden and uh, nobody is happier about this than Balyu himself. Um, and he he's very interested to know where everyone is going to be living and... Um, he composes these four poems, one for each season, um, mm. describing his life in the garden. Uh, and, but you know, before too long, he he begins to become kind of listless. Um, um, and seeing him in this situation, his his manservant Tea Leaf, as we mentioned, goes out and buys him some books. Um, and these books are. They're kind of illicit, in a way. Mm. They're, um, or they often have some kind of romantic or erotic quality, uh, or they're. You know, I guess it's it's hard to conceive of now, but there are some books which, although they weren't necessarily censored outright in the way that we would understand now, they were kind of. Uh, their content was considered to be kind of lewd or corrupting, uh, in some way. Uh huh. Yeah, uh, and this really feels like a um, kind of like a meta commentary moment on, on a few ways. One way I interpret this this moment is that like it's as if the author is like sort of toying with you. He's like, well, if you don't, well, you you don't find my book interesting. <laughs> well, I'll bring you some more books inside my book. So you may be gonna read those kind of thing. Like uh, because what's 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 so like fascinating about um, uh this like this this novel is that there's so much emphasis and, and it's there's so much e emphasis on the the day-to-day -day quotidian affairs that it's like almost like yeah. revolutionary in in its quotidianness I, I think right uh and so maybe that's also part of the meta commentary here it's like um like the, on, on one hand you know these it's dream of the red chamber is comparing itself to these its predecessors mm -hmm. in the in this kind of like non-canon canon right uh and and it's kind of acknowledging its roots in this sort of this literature which is very much um you know relegated to a station beneath the official histories and the, the official the classic of poetry and the rest of it right um but uh, yeah at, at the same time like uh so it the, what that it kind of counts itself more among the 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 ranks of the non-canonical or apocryphal texts than it does among you know the the official approved ones um or does it sort of does it kind of span the gap right the two? right somehow is it belongs it has a foot in both camps i i don't think that you know you know even I mean, th this is, in a sense, a classic novel, right? But it's a classic, it's like, it's still in a lower, uh, like, 
like you know weight division or something it's not it's not a heavy hitter like uh the book of history or something or, or right, the, right uh, yeah. it doesn't it's all drawn or what have but, you but but what's interesting is that even though it's cu- it is officially it's it's approved it's canonical even as you say if it's not part of that like highest rung but you know the editions that were published in the prc uh certainly in the early years of you know in the kind of 50s and 60s actually parts of the the narrative were excised were censored um, okay i think particularly the bits depicting um homosexuality um mm. so you know even there were even then elements in the book that were yeah that were considered yeah illicit lewd you know right that had to be cut even if the thing as a whole as an institution as a kind of cultural symbol was was permitted I, I, what's interesting is that it's very much like aware of um the role of censorship and how literature is being formed uh while also i, I think you know acknowledging its own you know like I- acknowledging the garden as a place of censorship right it's just like it's just like adam and eve they, they get censored by the the you know a, a couple like leaves you know strategically placed in the same way that like <laughs> The only way to bring in this, like, you know, these, like, really real novels, you know, these, like, uh, unadulterated, like, views of humanity and in all of its messiness um, and, you know, its, its illicit components, like, they have to be smuggled into the garden, especially because these, these, these books are actually, in addition to a source of entertainment, they're going to, they're going to function as sources of, of knowledge in, in, you know, in the same way that, uh, like romance novels today or teach people, give people conceptions, let's say, of 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 romance, right? Um, so, like a, a lot of these kind of like critical um, life uh, processes and moments are are filtered through media, um, and, and that that filtering process seems to be like represented here. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, these these texts become uh, a kind of a source of closeness between Bayou and Dayu, right? So Bayou reads them first, he really adores mm-hmm. them, and he, he ends up sharing them with Dayu, who herself. Yeah. She enjoys them, but also she somehow maybe feels a sense of, maybe like a faint sense of shame, at least initially. Um, or um, well, Yeah, yeah the, the attraction and the repulsion, right? And she kind of, it becomes a secret, you know, both between them and a secret component of their, of their consciousness to the, to the extent that we're going to see much later that um, during a few poetry competitions, uh, Dayu will like just inadvertently uh, let a reference to these, these kinds of texts slip in the same way that you might like, you, mm. you might have like a Freudian slip. It's the same kind of uh uh, everyone is trying to put up appearances, but uh, but re- the the real, you know, and in, in, in almost in the, like a Lacanian sense, is constantly um, like like reassimilating along the edges and and, and like seeping in and uh, sticking out and, and yeah kind of, yeah yeah that yeah. inner part of her slips out, doesn't it? it? Kind of it gets past her own censor. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so there's only really one final part to talk about, which is um, in the last chapter of this cycle. Um, <coughs> we're introduced to a character called uh, Jia Yun, uh, who's a, a young man 
he's a poor relative of the family um and through basically no small amount of uh flattery and conniving uh he he manages to find himself a cushy job with the family um and along the way he he meets Bayou and and kind of wins his favor and he also meets a um attractive young maid called uh Xiao Hong uh, crimson um and uh, a kind of uh, a mutual attraction grows up between them um but that's pretty much it right that's uh that give or take is um wow yeah so um are, are you um are you like synesthetic how do you say that are you a, so is this like is this cycle red and uh <laughs> the previous one was orange <laughs> I'm, I'm like trying to like get a sense for uh whether we can characterize like if the cycles are actually a meaningful unit then we should we should be able to say that like uh you know this corresponds to a different trigram or something oh yeah um (laughs) it's difficult to say isn't it um i was just thinking now not necessarily in terms of color or symbol but is there some unifying factor that we can um we can look at which draws all of these things in this cycle together you know which something which runs through all of it I, i don't know that there is necessarily um which is you know not not like a not a bad thing not a problem um um my like first reaction would just be to just to say that well this is you know this section is characterized by a lot of uh liminality a lot of these like in between spaces and thresholds but like the objection there that i get sometimes is like well like what isn't liminal in your in your system (laughs) nothing everything Um, is liminal (laughs) but like i mean on a certain level like i think that is a valid like our lives are fleeting lives you know And, and and we're we're embodied being, but our, our like bodies are like pretty weak, you know, they're like, they're fleshed, you know, prone toward injury. We don't have like shells and stuff. Um, it's like, you know, it's a, it's like a, a fleeting life. And so you're, you're going to be stuck between heaven and earth for the duration. Um, yeah. And so like, I, I guess, but I, I, I guess the question is, yeah, like, um, what do you do then when like, you know, when, how, how do you like, how, how do you make a finer distinctions? Um, but, but at, at the same time that yeah, we do see a lot of these like life processes that are like, we, we see people dying and we see people, people being born, you know, mm. side by side. And so yeah, maybe people. that's, maybe that's another way to, to frame it. Not simply like, not simply like uh, the edge of, the, of something, the, the limit but also um, this kind of like swinging duality, mm. right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and that kind of that that's that's kind of things we saw. Remember uh, outside the um, it's Jayutun goes for a walk in the in, in a kind of a remote place, and he comes up he comes upon a, uh, a a broken down monastery, and there's the um, the epigram across the gate, right? Like you only when you look, I I forget what the exact wording was, but it was again, emphasizing this, like only when you've gone too far, will you know how far you've gone? You know, only at the last moment will the prior moments, (coughs) uh, 
you know, only at midnight will the owl of Minerva <laughs> uh, finally fly. That kind of like sentiment was was expressed before in the previous cycle, and I think we're we're starting to see some of that here, maybe. Yeah. So what do you what, what do you think? Do you, any like final impressions? I think that we're really like truly into the good stuff here. Um, uh, you know, the next the next cycle of twelve is going to yeah. be quite an exciting one as well. Um, and yeah, we're really going to see the the story kind of progress uh, forward, picking up on some of the things that we mentioned here, um, and introducing some new elements as well. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, you want to you want to wrap it up there? Yeah, that, that, that's a good place to uh, to call it a day for, for this um, special review episode of rereading the stone. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, get in touch as always uh, we're, we're on Twitter at uh, Rereading Stone and we're also on Facebook although I, I don't update the Facebook as reliably <laughs> so if you really want if you really want to make sure be sure you um, you subscribe to the podcast feed maybe add a review um, yeah think about that um, yeah. but uh, until next time it's been a lot of fun we're looking forward uh, to continuing on in Dream of the Red Chamber. Okay? Uh, so until next time, bye-bye. Bye-bye.